Well, we can turn back to the passage you read there from Nehemiah chapter 9, a kind of survey of given by these Levites who were mentioned in the previous verses as they look back on where from where they were. Apparently there are two two undiscovered countries. And we may wonder what they are. But the answer to that question is that one of them is the past. And the other one is it's the future. And as with all undiscovered countries, uh, we can either ignore them or investigate them. God in his word uh, tells us how to do both. He tells us how to visit countries that we're not in. Because those countries, as I said, is a country of the past and the country of the future. We have to learn from the past we could call that the school that we go to and in the present we learn from the past to live in the future. If that's correct, it means that we ignore the past. We don't know how to live in the future. It may seem to us at the moment that the future looks very threatening. And no doubt it might be. But perhaps one reason it seems so threatening is that we don't know the past. It has been said that those who ignore history merely repeated and maybe that's part of our difficulty because we might imagine and there's always a tendency to do this I think we might imagine that we live in the worst crisis ever whereas it might not be the people of Nehemiah's day How did they react to their circumstances? What does this uh, chapter tell us? Indeed, what does the book tell us? Because the book covers a very brief period of time. And it all, all starts with building a wall. A wall that had not been built. And if, if they had known their past, they would have known of the necessity of building a wall. It's, it's so elementary, and yet they hadn't done it. 
And the first thing that Nehemiah did when he came to the city was build the wall to provide protection. But the building of the wall was a kind of catalyst for a whole list of other responses. As we saw a couple of weeks ago, they discovered there were certain things that God wanted them to do, like the, the Feast of Tabernacles. And as they look back to how it had been done previously, uh, they discovered that nobody had done it properly, which is quite an extraordinary thing for them to discover, wasn't it? They look back right as far to the days of Joshua, which was a period of several centuries. And despite all the great days between the time of Joshua and the time of Nehemiah, because there were great times as well as difficult times, they discovered that no one had kept that feast the way it should have been done. So they learned something from the past. And it looks like, having done that, they decided to do a survey of the past. And here in chapter 9, the Levites describe their past. And I don't know what you thought as you we read it, but it just seems to focus on two things. What God did in the past and what the people of Israel did in the past. So as we look at it today, I just want us to um, just kind of identify some of the things they noticed and then consider some lessons it has for ourselves. I suppose with regard uh, to the survey, there's lots of ways it could be divided. But I've just done uh, four things with it. There's God and Abraham in verses 7 to 8. And then there's the journey from Egypt to Canaan in verses 9 to 21. And then there's life in the land, verses 22 to 31. And then there's God in the current generation, verses 32 to 37. I think the, that division highlights that those in the current generation were looking at trajectories. Where are things going? So God and Abraham. Abraham, as we know, and as they indicate here, he was a pagan living in Ur of the Chaldeans. Ur was a very sophisticated city for the time. I don't know if you know this, but they had two alphabets, which is one more alphabet than we've got. So they were quite far advanced for their 
for their situation. The word Abraham just means exalted father. And those that know say that it could suggest he was involved in pagan worship. But whether that's the case or not, one day God appeared to him. And how he did it, we're not told. Just that God appeared to him and made such an impression on Abraham that Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees. And he had no idea where he was going. And we might think that is rather unusual. But is it unusual? If you've seen God, why would anything become uncertain again? I mean, that is what Abram tells us, isn't it? A sight of God is enough for the future. Abram, how many other believers were there? Well, there probably weren't any in Arifakaldees. There were some in the land that God was going to take them to, but Abram didn't know that then. But anyway, what they highlight about Abraham is there in verses 7 and 8 that um, God searched his heart. You found his heart faithful before you. Here was a man in whom the Lord, on whom, sorry, the Lord could look with pleasure. His heart was one that was marked by great faithfulness to God. And we can say, can't we, that God loved the heart of Abraham. Abraham was by no means perfect. He had collapses of faith. But the Lord still loved his heart. And as we know, he's the only person, as far as I can remember in the Bible, whom God addresses as my friend. And God made a covenant with him. Because Abraham was faithful, and that is what they say. We might want to put it the other way around and say God made the covenant and then he became faithful. That's not what the verse says. The verse says that Abram was faithful and then God made a covenant with him. And I suppose we can see the relevance of that order and what these people are doing here. They're going to make a covenant with God, which is described in the next chapter. But what kind of people can make a covenant with God? 
And I think the point they're highlighting from this is somebody that's faithful. So that was the start. It didn't look very promising, did it? One man. But that's what happened. And I suppose the fact that all these people are now here thinking about making their own covenant, well, they're all descendants of this man, Abraham. So although it was a very inauspicious start, it had produced something very striking. But then they move on in verses 9 to 21 to describe how they traveled to the land from Egypt. And of course, they're, they're highlighting all the things that God did for them. And they, they focus not so much on the, on the plagues that, that, um, that, that obviously damaged the Egyptians, but they, they focus on what happened after they had come out of Egypt and how they seemed trapped at the Red Sea. And whatever else that told them, it sort of told them they had no future, didn't it? They couldn't go back. And they couldn't go ahead, the way things seemed. And what did they do? Well, we're just told that they prayed. Moses cried to God. And God came and parted the Red Sea. And they got through it. And the Egyptians, they tried to do the same, but the, the sea came back together again. And because they had pursued the Israelites, they were drowned. If they hadn't pursued them, they wouldn't have been drowned. But anyway, they did that, and they were punished for it. After agreeing to let them go, God answered the prayers of Moses. And then they're going through a country they don't know. And God gives them a pillar of cloud by day to lead them and a pillar of fire by night. And they were a disorganized people. Yet God came down on Mount Sinai and gave them an order for their lives, all kinds of laws by which they were to live by highlighting, of course, the fact that he was to be worshipped on the Sabbath. They have mentioned all these things. He gave them bread to, from heaven as they traveled through the desert and water in a miraculous manner and just did all that for them. I mean, why are they mentioning all this? What's the point of knowing that in on one particular day, thousands of years ago, God parted the Red Sea. Because God doesn't change. I mean, that is a message, isn't it? It doesn't mean that today God is going to part the Red Sea. But it does mean that whatever obstacle is ahead, God can deal with it. And however 
disorganized Israel was. God had the answer for that. And they're telling God this. They were disobedient, even at Mount Sinai. Made the golden calf. And when they made the golden calf, they didn't intend to make a different God. When they made the golden calf, they were trying to specify what they thought God was like. And they they chose an animal that indicates strength. But in the process, they they reduce God to the level of a creature. And that was blasphemy. But they did it. And what did God do? Well, they tell us he showed them mercy. Some of them were punished because they persisted in their determination to go back to Egypt. But in the main, God showed them mercy. It was a time of crisis. Who could help them? God. Then in verses 22 to 31, they go into the land. And we're told there, in verse 22, where's the population going to come from? Well, their population, mushrooms. They overcome the inhabitants. The walls of Jericho fall down. They go into the land, there's already vineyards and orchards, and God's provided everything for them. He's kind. He has told them it's a land flowing with milk and honey. And when they go in, they find that is the case. And yet, sadly and strangely, they begin a cycle of rebellion and idolatry. Their fathers, that's what they did. They cry to God, and again and again, God heard them and showed mercy to them. The book of Judges tells us all these details, and later on, and it's all highlighting the fact, a wonderful fact, that it doesn't matter how low you get, God can take you out of it. So they look back to history. They visited the unknown country. And they discovered many things. And then they spoke about themselves. Where were they in verses 32 and 30 to 37? Well, they have come back from Babylon. But it's only a partial restoration. 
doesn't really compare to what they've seen in the unknown country. Because in the unknown country, there has been bigger events. Although they're back in the land, the captivity is still, in a sense, going on. Because the people in charge are the rulers of Persia. They're in their own land, the land that God promised to Abraham. But they're in it, not as sons, but as slaves. They can't really do things yet the way it should be done. They're in Canaan, but they're not enjoying the benefits of Canaan. What a sad state of affairs to be in, isn't it? To be in this country marked by these limitations. Yet when they visit the unknown country of the past, they can read about times of great freedom. And as we choose to visit the country of the future, described by all of God's great promises, then there's wonderful prospects. But there they are, slaves in the land of promise. It's quite sad, really, isn't it? To where they were. They had taken a few steps of recovery, but not very many. But as we can see from this chapter, at the end of it, verse 38, in God they had hope. And they had put together this covenant, which is described in chapter 10. But they had put together this covenant, something tangible. Something that would specify their response. As because they had visited the unknown country. And they had seen what these previous inhabitants had done. In order to get divine blessing. So that's the survey. What lessons can we learn from this? Well, got three or four of them, but we have to see God's rule in history, don't we? And we can only see that in the unknown country of the past. These people in Nehemiah's time, they could look back to great events. And of course, so can we. As the Christian church, we can look back to incredible events. We can look back to the, say, to the early church, who despite going through 10 empire-wide persecutions, conquered the empire. The Roman Empire, that is with even one of the Roman emperors having to admit on his deathbed 
and he said it with great hatred and ferocity. You have conquered, O Galilean. But we can look back also to men who stood up, women as well, for God. How do we know who Jesus is? Where do our descriptions often come from? Whether we know it or not, they come from the early church. People wrestled. How do we describe our Savior? One of them, Athanasius, persisted in, insist, in, in insisting that something had to be said precisely about Jesus. And somebody said to him, Athanasius, do you not know the world's against you? What was his reply? then Athanasius is against the world. That was courage, wasn't it? I remember when I, when I, around the time I was converted, there was a chorus. I have decided to follow Jesus. And one of the lines was, though no one join me, I still will follow. We can look back to people who were prepared to stand alone like Abraham. Luther. How we know the doctrine of justification by faith. Revivals. Why did Whitfield start preaching? But we have to look back and see what God has done, don't we? Because that tells us you can deal with the future. If we don't look back, then we don't know what he's done. So we have to see God's rule in history. I think this survey also tells us there has to be realism before recovery. There's danger, so we're going to unknown places, isn't there? We know that's true, even at a natural level. Unless we're very skilled, there's lots of places we shouldn't visit. And I suppose as we look at the past, there are some dangers, not in the past. Of course, there are some in the past, but I don't mean that. I mean dangers in ourselves. And just looking at myself, there can be the danger of indifference, can't there? Don't care. Well, this chapter tells us we should care. There's a danger of ingratitude of what was handed on 
In this chapter, it tells us that danger as well. It's a danger of disrespect. And this chapter highlights that also. But there's other dangers that we need to deal with in order to be realistic. There may be no incentive to pray because we really have not seen great answers. John Knox's burden, give me Scotland or I die. What kind of prayer is that? But sometimes, at least for myself, don't have great incentive to pray because we haven't seen great, massive, incredible answers. We haven't seen entire streets weeping in repentance. We haven't seen communities gathering together to call upon God. But we can see them in the power country, in the unknown country. We are walking on the streets where people once used to weep over their sins. We've got the danger of having no awareness of how close we can walk with Jesus. But the fact that unknown country tells us that people did. And they knew him better than anyone else on earth. And there can be no longing to serve because we're unaware of the great rewards. But the unknown country tells us of the great peace and joy that flooded people's souls as they served God. And we have to look at ourselves and say, How realistic are we? So there has to be realism before recovery. There's also got to be repentance. That's what this survey tells us, isn't it? No recovery without repentance. There was always recovery after repentance. That's the history of Israel, isn't it? They get blessed by God for a period. They turn away from God for a period. They pray to God after the period of turning away, and he restores them. As you read the book of Judges, you say to yourself, how long will God keep on doing this cycle? And one answer is, as long as they repent. But repentance. Well, what is repentance? It is repentance done at conversion. And of course, that's a wonderful, beautiful experience. And um, 
as it's been put, we weep our way to Calvary. And we go to the cross and Jesus there is suffering. That's a good country to visit too, of course. And we go to the cross and we sense God's smile coming on us. And we see our sinfulness. And did we say to ourselves, did Jesus die for sinners like us? And the answer is yes. And we repent. Our hearts just overflow with sorrow and regret and so on. And that's a wonderful kind of repentance. But it's not the only kind of repentance. And there's a danger that we'll just stick with that one kind of repentance. When we visit the unknown country, we see that there is a repentance needed before their spiritual recoveries. And that repentance is that I have to look at my heart as one who claims to know God and just look at how I am. And also, what I'm going to do about it. It's easy to work out that we're defective. And it's easy to work out that we're deficient. And it's easy to remain moaning about ourselves. The real fruit of proof of repentance is a dedication that should flow from it. Repentance is empowering. It gives energy to the soul. If it's real repentance. A repentant person is a different person. And just as we can go to some countries and have a life-transforming experience when we visit the unknown country of the past, we can see what real repentance should be like. I have to ask myself, and I hope you ask yourself, have you spent as long weeping over the current situation as you did at your conversion? That's a real question. But these people, they found repentance. You know, one of the covenanters, as he was on a scaffold, and in those days, they all made speeches about what they were leaving behind. And what this man said was, 
Farewell, sweet repentance. Repentance is a beautiful experience. It's not something to be shunned. It's not the last desperate act. It's a catalyst for something better. So, we're to see God's rule in history, and there's to be realism before recovery, and there's to be repentance, and there's also got to be a recognition of God. Verse 32 tells us that, doesn't it? He's a God of great mercy. Now therefore our God. After this catalyst of failures, they turn and say to God, now therefore. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, what a a grasp of God. Recognize his almightiness and his faithfulness. And it's striking how often in the Bible both these things go together from the perspective of God's people. They combine his power and his faithfulness. I suppose that combination can be considered at any given stage. And it's possible for us to look at them from our personal point of view. God can show his power in my life and God can be faithful in my life. And we can all say that. God can show his power by opening doors for us in his providence so that something in our lives just occurs that seemed impossible otherwise. And when that kind of thing happens, we just say, well, God has been faithful. But as we look out in our world today, where is God's power? It's not because he's suddenly been drained of it. He is still the almighty God. But where are the signs of his power? I mean, that's basically what these people in Nehemiah's time were asking. Lord, we're in a mess. Lord, here we are, slaves in Canaan. Where is your power? Do we ever ask God that? Or do we think that's been irrelevant? Disrespectful. Irreverent is meant, not irrelevant. Although both can be used.
The other thing they focus on, of course, is his mercy. I actually wonder when I look at myself, and I suspect it's true for many others, if not all others, we don't really grasp how merciful God is. And one reason for that is we don't visit the unknown country. We just judge it by what's happened to ourselves. But our God is merciful and gracious. He's long-suffering. He desires to be merciful. His tender mercies are above all his other works. He delights in pardoning. He multiplies to pardon. I will abundantly pardon. And surely, surely, we want people of the future to come on a visit to 2023 and see that God acted in power. Surely that should be our desire for future generations that they would look back and just take a visit and say, yeah, now that year began when things seemed quite bleak. But God came and did something. Something like opening the Red Sea or defeating the empire of Babylon overnight to let his people out. Or the day of Pentecost. Or lots of numerous other days. But it would be wonderful, wouldn't it, if 2023 would join those occasions. So, We can see what God did in the past. And we can see the necessity of realism. And we can see the potential that flows from repentance. And as we look at our great covenant God, the unchangeable I am, the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the one before whom all the threats that we imagine well, he can just blow them over. And therefore, we should take guidance, strength of heart, and grit of determination for what these weak, disconsolate slaves in Canaan did. They just turned to their God and said to him, what you did in the past, do it again. Shall we pray?
Lord, we know there's no God like you. The greatest expressions of power that we see in our contemporary world, well, compared to you, they're all nothing. And yet we see them, but we don't see your power the way we would want to see it. Perhaps we don't see your power in the way that you would want to show it. Lord, we can't tell you what to do, but we can to some extent mention what is wrong. And we ask you, Lord, to look down on us, your church, how weak we are, how irrelevant we are. We're beyond the margins. Lord, we pray that you would come in power and that you would work quickly as you did in the days of Nehemiah and just astonish us and astonish the world by your great ability. We pray you, Lord, to show your mercy and to show your mercy in a widespread manner. Do it, Lord, for your own name's sake. Amen.